in the name of Jesus that we gather this morning. It's in his name that we confidently gather and leave this place every Lord's Day because we know that through his work in our lives, we faithfully, or he will allow us to overcome. And so let's pray in the name of Jesus to our Father this morning. Father, it's your design, it's our desire to declare your great deeds from one generation to another. This morning we've sang about your wondrous love that you have for, for the saints here that are gathered, not just in this place, but around the world Father, as they collectively make much of you in their respective houses of worship. Father, we thank you that you have given us this wondrous love. Not only have you given it to us, you've revealed it to us. You've allowed us to be heirs of it and also declarers of it. We make much of you. We thank you for that. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us truly to meditate on your awesome deeds. Father, we've raced in here, some of us late, some of us cold, with many things on our minds. Father, pause our hearts now. We ask that you would help help us to meditate on your awesome deeds. Father, help us to forget the things that are meaningless. Help us to see all these temporary things in light of your eternal glory. The joy that you have set before us that we run towards. Father, help us to be reminded this morning of how you have rescued us from our sin, how you've rescued us from our despair, from the muck and from the mire. You've set our feet on the firm foundation that we sang about this morning. You've laid it out there for us, and we walk on it now. We stand boldly on it this morning, that firm foundation who is Jesus Christ. Father, we sing this morning because of his righteousness, a righteousness that is extended to us, not because of anything that we've done. But according to your mercy, Jesus, you've called to us from our, while we were in our own wicked rebellion. You've caused us to look to you for salvation. We do that now. You have rescued us from certain death. You've made us alive in you to God the Father. Yet in big ways and small ways, all of them significant, Father, we have returned to the pit that you've rescued us from. In varying ways, we've forgotten this week who you said that we are. And Father, we ask that you forgive us of our sins. We pray that you'd forgive us of our forgetfulness. Father, forgive us for straying and cause us not to forget who we are in you in this coming week. And even right now, as we boldly approach the throne of grace, help us to remember that we are the sons and daughters of the Father because of what Christ has done for us. Father, you call us righteous. Help us to act righteously in Christ. Father, help us to return to the joy of our salvation. Father, with the, with, with the Psalms, we declare that the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding and steadfast love. Father, though hell would try to shake our souls, may we stand firm in that steadfast love because our God is slow to anger and slow to wrath. Father, may we be faithful as your people to share this good news, this gospel of undeserved grace, of undeserved mercy. May we share it with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends. Father, in our faithful proclamation of the gospel, may we have the joy of seeing people come to Christ out of those groups. Father, we intercede this morning for new creation at Anglican Church. We thank you that you have called this church into being, into existence, that you've given them a faithful shepherd, Pastor Justin Clemente. Father, right now we pray that you'd be with them, 
As they open your word, as they sing and pray and hear your word preached, we pray that you'd meet them there, that your church would be helped there. Not, not far, just a few blocks from us this morning as we gather, meet with them. Father, we thank you for Kat Tidwell and the work that she is doing both in WVU and even now this week in Columbia. Father, she's leading a group of students to share their faith with other Colombian Christians and college campuses. And Father, as they work to raise up a team, a ministry there in Columbia, we pray that your blessings would be on it. Father, we know that as they declare your word to these other, other folks that are lost and in darkness, Father, we know that you said that your word would not return void. And so would you comfort their hearts as they declare the goodness of your mercy that you've extended to them, as they tell that with, to others, we pray that they would have a confidence knowing that your word will not return void. Father, we think of the family that we'll call the S family. They're in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia right now. Father, they're looking for an apartment. They're seeking direction. They need you to, 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 to demonstrate your love and presence with them now in new and manifest ways. And so we pray that you do that. Father, meet their needs. Give them a confidence in you. Father, we pray that you'd protect them from Satan, from the attacks of, of our enemy, from the oldest in that group to the youngest, Father. May their hearts and minds be stayed by the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. Father, we turn our attention to the leaders in, in our government and around the world. We ask that they be guided by your sovereign hand, especially those who find themselves in the theater of war. We pray that your uh, wisdom would permeate the minds of those, even those who are far from you. God, we know that you, your, their hearts are in your hand and that you turn them with us wherever you will. So we trust that this morning. Father, we pray that human flourishing would abound in the places where it is darkest. And Jesus, that you'd be glorified. And Father, cause your church to be faithful, to continue to lift these and other brothers up to you on a regular basis from this Sunday to the next. Father, our greatest desire this morning is that you would order our steps in your word, that you'd use our time this morning as we open this Bible to make us love Jesus more, to be conformed into his likeness in one more degree than we were when we walked in. Father, we desperately ask these things this morning. Among all these, that is chief. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat. And uh, that invitation to have a seat is for everybody except for Hubtown Kids. And so if you're in the Blue Station, ages 3 to 5, you can meet uh, the Shadden crew over here to my left, your right. And if you are in the Gray Station, you can head over to my right, your left. And that is uh, ages 6 all the way up to 5th grade. And so if that describes you, if you're in the gray station, you want to head this way. If you're in the, the blue station, you want to head over this way. And the, more instructions is on the screen there. As they're heading out, I want to just ask you this or remind you of this question that they're going to be looking at, particularly in the gray station. That is, they're going to be answering this, what is God? What is God? And the answer that they're going to get I'll give you now so that you know when you ask them if they answer the right question or not. And I would encourage you, by the way, just show of hands, anybody here that actually asked the child last week what they learned in Hubtown Kids Gray Station? Anybody? One, two, three, four, five, six. Anybody else? Shame on you. Shame on the rest of you. No, I'm just kidding. No, this is, there's no shame. There's no guilt. Thank, thanks be to Jesus. Now, but this week, I would encourage you, ask, follow up with them. Ask them. They'll, they are excited. I want you to be excited, too. Ask them, what is God? 
and uh, make sure that they answer, God is the creator of everyone and everything. I'm so excited that we've begun that new class, so be faithful to be praying for them. We truly believe that God is going to uh, grow our children in and, uh, and draw them to himself through that class, and so uh, be praying that that would take place. If you got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark. It's the Gospel of Mark. It's uh, toward the right. If you open up one of the books in front of you, one of the, the black Bibles, it should, should be reading on page 1012, 1012, and so you can turn there now. Last week and the week before, we uh, just recap briefly. We looked at the, 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 the Passover meal, the last Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples there in the upper room. Jesus, Jesus kind of uh, re, uh, re, reshaped that Passover meal, gave it a new meaning, or at least demonstrated that he was the fulfillment of that meaning originally. Judas some, at some point leaves in the darkness because Jesus says that one of them will betray. Judas gets up and leaves into the darkness. Jesus also in that time in between that last sermon and, uh, or that two, two weeks ago and today, he foretells uh, that all the disciples, not just Judas, will all betray or at least abandon Jesus. And you'll remember that, that Peter vehemently denies it. He's not, that's not going to happen. Remember, Jesus is saying it like once, and Peter's like, he just can't stop saying it. No, it's never going to happen, never going to happen, never going to happen, right? They leave the upper room. They're heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane there on the western side of the Mount of Olives. Before we jump into our text, let me just give you like a a run-through really quickly of of what we're about to read. And so first, they're heading from the upper room inside of the, the city gates, the city walls of Jerusalem. They're heading east towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means press of oils. I want you to think of it being like a a, a fenced garden without a roof. It's a big fenced garden. It's got some buildings in there. It's It's got an oil press. We'll talk about what that is. And there it's on the western side of the Mount of Olives. So you've got the Mount, the Temple Mount over here, and then you've got the the Mount of Olives here. And and as they exit out, they come over to the Mount of Olives here, or to the uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gets into the garden with his 11 disciples, and he leaves eight at one point, and he goes on a little deeper into this fenced garden. With that eight, he tells them to watch. Stay there and watch. He moves on a little bit farther with the, uh, the inner circle, which does exist, Peter, James, and John. He takes them in a little farther. And he says, you stay here. You watch. And Jesus, distressed, troubled greatly, walks away from them just a short distance, as far really as he can go. And the scriptures tell us that he falls on the ground. Not falling with style, not intentionally, overwhelmed, distressed, heart full of sorrow, he collapses and he begins to pray to the Father, let this cup pass. He prays intensely, After some period of time, he rises, he goes back to the the disciples, and he finds them asleep. He calls out to them, watch and pray. Could Could you not just stay awake a little bit longer? Watch and also pray. Jesus goes again, and he prays again. He returns, he finds them sleeping. Again, he tells them that they're to watch and pray. Then he leaves, he goes back and prays and comes back. And once again, the third time, he finds them sleeping. And he wakes them up. He tells them, 
time for sleeping, I guess, is going to continue, but you need to get up right now because the one who I've been betrayed by and the hands who I have been delivered to have arrived. So that's kind of the scene. You understand what's taking place. Jesus troubled greatly there in the garden, knowing what will take place in the next few hours, knowing what will befall him in the following day. He'll be crucified. He prays to the Father. So with that brief explanation, would you look with me at verses 32 to 42, found there in Mark 14. This is what the Scriptures say. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, quickly, we give pause. We come to you and we ask that according to your will, that you would make it our will to desire to see Jesus lifted up in this passage. Father, may we be encouraged. May the Spirit of God correct us of sin and draw us into greater joy. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. What I... One of the greatest things, one I think one of the, the main idea, if I can say so boldly, in this text is this. Both in his divinity and humanity, Jesus experienced intense distress and pain. There's no action in this main idea. It's something that we need to truly understand and come to grips with. Both in his divinity and humanity, Jesus experienced intense st- distress and pain. With that main idea kind of floating over our heads, we're going to try to work to that or or maybe work out of that with these three lessons from Gethsemane. Three lessons from Gethsemane. The first is this, the weight of sin. It's our proclivity to forget the weightiness of sin, both sin in general and sin in our own lives. We forget how heavy it is. We forget the weight of it. Two, another lesson we'll learn this morning is the weakness of flesh. The weakness of flesh. This is a lesson that Peter needed to learn, and perhaps some of us do here this morning. I know I'm one of them. The weakness of flesh. And third, this final glorious lesson, the way to pray. 
And so the first lesson, the weight of sin. Look at verse 33. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. I want you to think about the the emotional power in these words. Greatly distressed. Troubled. Sorrowful in his soul to the point even of death. It's intense emotion. It implies anguish. It's the fact that he's sorrowful. He's deeply saddened. And what would cause the Lord of bliss to become sorrowful, to be troubled, to be greatly distressed? Why? Well, it's the cup. The cup that's offered to him in this very hour. Our Lord and Savior, he saw the cross and it was grim. It was a terrible reality that he was about to face. And yet beyond the cross was something far more terrible. And that was the wrath of God. And that's what this metaphor is pointing towards. The cup. What is the cup? What's in the cup? It's the cup of God the Father's wrath. Jesus himself would be confronted by. And it wasn't something out of the hand of God. It wasn't something, or it was something from the hand of God, but not out of hand from God. And what I mean by that is it it was the intentional judgment of God that was meant for us that he was now giving to his son. The chalice of death, of God's anger. And Jesus is here about to take it from the Father's hand and to drink it the same cup in a sense that we also drank of last week at least the same cup was symbolized the blood of the covenant the blood that would be shed he knew what was before him he knew why it was before him the cross because of the wrath of God in verse 35 it says he went on a little farther and he fell down on the ground and he prayed if it were possible the hour might pass from him imagine what would cause the Lord Jesus Christ, to fall, to stumble under the weight of something. Here the Lamb of God is beginning to feel the weight of the penalty of the sins of all those who would be saved. He's feeling the wrath of God that was turned from us and turned onto him. So he stumbles under this burden. It's important for us to understand that this burden that he was bearing, that we see it in light of his two natures. You see, remember, Jesus had two natures. He was one person, but he had a divine nature. And in the condescension, in the incarnation, he added to himself another nature. One did not replace the other. One did not marry or mingle with the other. In the year 451, the church convened the great council of Chalcedon, one of the most important ecumenical councils of all time. And and in that council, what what God had revealed to them about Jesus was made clearly established. Heresy was put out. Jesus was one person with two natures. He added to his divine nature a human nature. And in the adding, listen, the two natures are not confused They're not mixed, they're not divided, and they're not separated. As we think of this night, some would say that Jesus was distressed in light of his impending death and the physical pain that he would experience. 
And they would say, this is why he sweat great drops of blood there in that garden. Others, almost in disgust, would claim, not in the least. Jesus was suffering. Jesus was experiencing agony, not because of the cross, but because of the wrath of God. And they're saying he would be separated from the Father. And the debate could go on and on, as if these two things are, at, are not both true. To only consider the cross, though, is to misunderstand Jesus' divinity. To only consider the wrath of God and the separation from God the Son, from God the Father, is to misunderstand his humanity. Friends, the cross was terrible. It was a bloody mess. And Jesus, in his humanity, would experience great pain. And even more was the wrath of God. So don't steal from Jesus' glory by diminishing the level of his physical suffering to give credence or, or honor to his spiritual suffering. Both are terrible. Jesus separated from the Father and his divinity. Jesus crucified his life, his literal life, snuffed out by his enemies. Incredibly shameful and painful. So applied to his divinity, he would be separated from the Father. He would experience great shame and humility. Applied to his humanity, he would experience fear, pain, agony. Both are true. So Jesus is experiencing all of this in both of his natures. Why? Because of our sin. So remember this morning, the cross is not an obstacle that the Father couldn't figure out how to avoid. It was The Father's righteous response to our rebellion. It was Jesus was going to the cross. He would be separated from the Father because of our sin. We need to feel the weight of that. We know that Jesus felt the weight. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. You might jot this down in your notes and visit it later. Let me read it aloud. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mentioned a moment ago that Gethsemane means oil press, a press of oils. Not that long ago, I had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land, and there's this company that has established a, uh, a neat experience. It's an incredible experience, rather, and it's found there in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. What they've done is created, recreated, a first-century olive press complete with a gate that goes all the way around it, made of stone and mud homes, and inside of these homes, different uh, places of uh, ways that you could see them going about their day-to-day life. And they even have an oil press with a real mill and a donkey named Moshe. Moshe. They have a press inside as well. Spending time in there gives you the opportunity to really feel the weight of the mill to hear the crack of the pit and smell the crushing of the olive that would just fill and permeate the air. 
olive trees planted all the way around. The olives are gathered. They're placed into a trough. And there the mill would roll around, uh, moved around by this donkey, and they'd be crushed. You could hear the popping, the cracking, the incredible weight and pressure. Then they would gather all the, the cracked olives up. They would put them into a bag, and they would stack about 15 high. They would stack them over a, a concrete or a, or a stone hole. They'd lay a beam, a large beam, across that, and then they would begin to attach weight and cinch that weight up on that beam would, would cause more and more pressure to come down on those bags of crushed olives. The first batch of oil that would drip off of those bags, that is extra virgin olive oil. And that first pressing, that first bit that would come off of those crushed olives would be gathered and would be sent to the temple. Be given to God. It was the most precious, the most pure of all that would come from the olive. That would be sent to the temple, be used to anoint priests and kings, be put into the menorah to light the candles there, or the, the lamps there within the, the temple. But that, hap- that would happen, that pressing would take place two more times, three in all. First batch given to the temple, then more pressure would be added. That, that batch that would come out next, that would be used for cooking and for medicine and for perfume. And the final would be used for soap and for lamps. The three, uh, the three pressings that are taking place there in any old garden that regularly took press in the Garden of Gethsemane there in between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, it kind of reminds me of, and many others, of the pressing that was taking place there in the garden. It says that Jesus prayed three times. I can't help but think that there's a connection between the pressing three times of the olives and the pressing three times of Jesus. So he'd go to his father under this immense pressure. Considering Isaiah 53, it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On Jesus' shoulders was laid our heavy burden of iniquity. It goes on to say that he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus, like the olive, crushed his life squished out of him smashed it's interesting upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace why because with his wounds we are healed one of the things that would come out would be used or one of the ways that the olive oil would be used would be for medicine and for cleansing it's interesting that through Jesus' crushing through his pressing we church have been washed we have been healed As you think this morning of this idea, the weight of our sin that was on Jesus, crushing him, pressing him, I ask you, how should we respond? How should we respond to this? As we see our Savior here in Mark 14 suffering under the weight of our sin, well, one response that would be appropriate would be what we find in Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from your sin. And so number one, one way that we can respond to the weight of our sin placed on Jesus is to repent of our sin. Repent. Time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Another way that we can respond is 
with gratitude. Gratitude. One of the emotions that we experience during the Lord's Supper is sorrow. We think about all the pain and all the shame that Jesus, our Lord, that he endured for us. That sorrow leads us really to gratitude and that gratitude then to joy. These are all proper responses for our Savior's death. We think of the weight of guilt that we had that he took and God placed on him, the weight that crushed him. We can respond in joyful gratitude that he would be willing to do that for us. And so we respond in repentance. We respond in gratitude. And here's a good one. I pray this is yours. That we would respond in resolve. That you would resolve to feel the weight of your own sin. And so that when you're tempted, that you'd consider the pain that has caused Jesus as a result of our sin. In the face of Satan, when he tempts us, To draw away after lust or whatever it is, sinful desires, would we not see our Savior bearing the weight of our sin? Would we not be reminded of what it cost him and how heavy a burden he carried? Jesus falls to the ground under the weight of the hour, under the burden that's in this cup. And yet he's not the only one in this passage that felt a heavy weight. So did the disciples. Mark records in verse 40 that their eyes were so heavy that they couldn't stay awake. Maybe you know the feeling. Have you ever been so tired that you tried to keep your eyes open and you just couldn't? It's been said that this passage, this Gethsemane scene is a study in human weakness. Look at verse 35. And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Another lesson that we see in the scene through the garden of, in the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane is the weakness of the flesh. And so we see the weight of our sin on, the cro- on Jesus Christ bearing down on his shoulders. And now we also see the weakness of flesh. One of the most basic needs of the human body is rest. Right? It's only natural to sleep. But when Jesus instructed them to stay awake, he was instructing them to put off the natural desires of the body and to let them be subservient to his command for them. They couldn't do it. Peter thought that he would fight off the hordes. He couldn't even fight off the Sandman. Similar to the most basic goal of the human body, aside from sleeping, probably more basic than sleeping, is the, the goal to live, to not die. It's the most, one of the most basic instincts that we have to do what it takes to continue to live. When God the Father sent his Son to take on human flesh, that flesh that he took on wanted to live. He was no less human than you. In fact, Jesus was more human than you, wanting to live, wanting to glorify God with all of his life. Here in this garden, 
in his humanity. Jesus, though, is tempted to rebel against the will of God the Father. You see, the flesh gets tired. The flesh wants to live. and Ultimately, the flesh wants to rebel against God. We're tempted to do that. Jesus is tempted to run for his life. Some of you might say, well, how can Jesus really be tempted? Doesn't James inform us that God cannot be tempted with evil? That's true. James 1.13 is right. But John 1.14 says this, And the Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. We covered this a moment ago. He added to his divine person, his divine nature, a second nature. He took on flesh. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16 says this. Since then we have a great high uh, high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Listen to verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect, or who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus had a body, Jesus was tempted, and yet he was without sin. When his flesh, when his natural desires would say one thing, and the will of God revealed was another, Jesus submitted to the Father. So we see the weakness of Jesus' flesh. He submits to the Father. We see the weakness of the disciples, unable to submit and falling asleep. Jesus goes and prays to the Father to be strengthened. Luke tells us that the Father sends an angel, literally as Jesus is praying, to strengthen him in the flesh. Jesus returns to his disciples and it's almost as if he's shocked that they fell asleep. And of course he's not shocked. But the point that he makes to them is that they thought they could stay awake. They thought they wouldn't abandon him. They thought that they could follow him. And again, if they're not even able to stay awake, will they really be able to not deny him? If they can't even deny the the desire to sleep, will they not also be able to deny this desire to live and not to die with their master, to drink this cup of wrath that he also will drink? You'd assume they would be able to stay awake, though. Have you ever been in the middle of a really, really serious discussion with somebody? Maybe you're arguing or settling a disagreement with your spouse. Maybe you're in deep talks with a family member. Maybe you're talking about the meaning of life and the the night has just slipped away and your eyes have just gotten so heavy and you're about to fall asleep. This is a safe place. Have you ever done that before? We've all done that. If you're courting a young lady at the moment, don't ever do that. Make sure you say good night and then hang up and fall asleep, right? Ladies, have you ever had someone fall asleep on you? Maybe you were in the middle of that disagreement and you weren't the one that fell asleep, but they fell asleep while you were talking to them. How dare they? The subject was so important, it was so weighty, and yet you fell asleep. They fell asleep on you. How dare they? Well, when Jesus returns and they're asleep, he instructs them, 
Now, now they're not just to stay awake, but they're also to, 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 to pray, and they're to pray specifically that they wouldn't fall into temptation and disobedience. They wouldn't fall into the temptation to deny Christ so that they could live a little longer. Jesus just prophesied. He just told them something incredibly important that they would all fall away. And now he's saying, you need to pray that you do not fall away. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. How could something so terrible, how could something so important be told to them and then they just promptly fall asleep as if they've just drank a glass of warm milk? You'd think that they would be distressed themselves. You'd you'd think that they would also be in agony over their own shame and guilt. The fear of what really would they would be actually capable of doing here in the next few hours. You'd think that they would be the ones falling on their face just as Jesus did. And that they would pray to God the Father that he would have mercy on them. And yet that wasn't the case. Jesus returns and tells them to watch and pray. He goes back and prays for the second time. Saying the same words the scriptures say. And then he returns to his disciples only to find them asleep yet again. Remember, he tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He admits this to them. The spirit, it's that part that is alive to God. It's willing to do what is right in the life of a Christian. But then the human body is weak. The flesh is often, in many of us, stronger than the spirit. And though the Spirit would be willing to do this task, the flesh is weak. We see that in the life of Peter. Peter truly loved his Savior. He truly loved Jesus. He really didn't think that he would ever deny him. And yet, he learned, or will learn in just a few days, a few weeks of our time, how weak his flesh truly is. And that's a lesson that we need to learn. It's a lesson that Peter learned all too well and would to God that we also would learn this lesson. The liquor of intoxicating self-confidence is enticing, but remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so, so weak. But what does Jesus prescribe? How do these verses describe Jesus in this weak moment? He instructs his disciples that they're to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And that's the very thing that we find Jesus doing. Let me say this. If Jesus, having no sin in his flesh, but praying like he did to God the Father, how much more should we, born in sin, dead in sin, how much more should we pray to God the Father? Let me say this. When Peter should have been confirming, he was denying. And that's because when Peter should have been praying, he was sleeping. When Peter should have been confirming, he was denying. That took place because when Peter should have been praying, he was sleeping. And that's the lesson, the last lesson from Gethsemane this morning. The way to pray. We need to pray. And Jesus gives us instructions on how to pray by his example. Quickly look at verse 35 again. 
It says, and going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is what he said. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Three times Jesus prayed that. If we break it down, what are the contents of this prayer that Jesus kept repeating? Number one, recognition. Number two, petition. Number three, submission. Let's let's work through this quickly. Number one, recognition. Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He recognizes the Father's place Authority over him. The Father has control of all things. He has ordained all things to happen. Nothing is out of the Father's control. This is not too dissimilar from how Jesus prayed in the model prayer. Do you remember how that began? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. To sit enthroned in heaven is to have all things at your disposal, to be able to do all things. And so this is where Jesus in his humanity, prays to the Father, all things are possible for you, Father. Though addressed to him, our prayers are often befitting the God who sits in heaven, though, or the one through whom all things are possible. And Jesus begins with a recognition of the Father first, but second, he turns to his own petition. He makes his request known to God the Father, In his humanity, Jesus had desires. And his desire that we can relate to was to live. To not experience the pain of the cross. That was a reality. And remember, because of Jesus' divinity, we should not diminish his humanity. Splinters hurt. Death was scary. And so Jesus makes his petition to the Father. Is it possible that there would be another way, Father? One that doesn't include what I'm about to face. Is there any other way? And some of you might think, isn't this akin to rebellion? Jesus sharing what's in his heart with God the Father. Let me say this. Rebellion is rebellion. Honesty is honesty. Jesus is simply communicating to the Father what his, his personal desires are. What his emotions are. And he ends his prayer with submission, and he, fo- or, uh, uh, yeah, and he follows it up with obedience afterwards. As we think of Jesus, the prayer that he offers to the Father, my mind goes to some of you. Some of you are presently experiencing difficult circumstances and situations in your life. Your circumstances are heavy. Perhaps they're painful Maybe the road that you walk, the path that you walk is lonely. Maybe it's full of struggle and difficulty. Perhaps you know whatever road that you walk, whatever burden you bear, that it is not outside of the commands and will of the Father. And so you look to him and you say, what are you doing in my life? What what are all of these things here for? We know in our minds, that the things and the difficulties that we experience are here. They're given to us to prepare us for eternity. They're to bring about our personal holiness and to bring glory to God. And while all that's true, I want to share this with you. It's not sin to ask the Father for another way. 
The scriptures are full of this. The Psalms are replete with folks asking God, why? Why is this taking place? Why is this my lot? Why are these things in my life? Full of God, of people asking the Father for answers, asking him for another way in a sense. And it may be weakness in those moments because of our flesh, but brothers and sisters, to ask the Father for another way is not sin. Now of the three of these components of Jesus' prayer, this is the most popular. And often this is where we begin and end. Father, this is my will. That is all. Jesus begins, reverence for the Father. You can do all things. And this is what's in my heart. This is what I'm feeling right now. This is what I desire in my flesh. Nevertheless, Father, your will, not mine. Oftentimes we go the other route. I want this, end of story. And that's the M.O. of the sinful life. To declare to God what we want, what we demand, and end it there. It's important that you notice that Jesus doesn't end his prayer there. He begins with the authority of the Father, and he ends with the submission to the Father. And so look at three. Submission. He submits to the written, revealed will of the Father. We reference the the covenant of redemption between the three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Before time began, the Father had determined that the eternal Son would die for the church. And what's more, the Son and the Spirit agreed to this plan, referred to by by theologians as the covenant of redemption. So in harmony together with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus would die for the sins of his people. And while in his humanity Jesus did not know all things, he did know this. He he knew that he he had come to this earth to die, to give his life as a ransom for many, to serve and not be served. And so finally, in his prayer, in his pain, in his suffering, he submitted to the Father. There's an incredible lesson for us here. Your pain that you ask God to take away, but he doesn't, there's a reason that you have it. The difficulties that you face, the sorrow you wish you could escape, it has a purpose. There's no sin in asking God to take it away, but there is sin in not submitting to it under the sovereign hand of God. Looking to Jesus, both in his humanity and divinity, he felt the weight of our sin. He felt the weakness of the flesh, and he knew the way to pray, and he, in righteousness, submitted to the Father in prayer. Let me say this. There's a correlation between Jesus' prayer and his personal righteousness. There's a a correlation. When he was tempted, what did he do? The beginning of his ministry, what did he do when he was tempted? He went to the words of God. And he quoted them in the face of the accuser and the attacker. And now as he's tempted, what does he do? He calls out to the Father. Similarly, there's a correlation between Peter's prayerlessness and his sin. Between Peter's prayerlessness and his abandonment, his denial of Jesus. 
I said it a moment ago, when he should have been praying, he was sleeping. And maybe you can relate. Just for a moment, I want to enter into a space that really might make you feel uncomfortable. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard a, a preacher squeal after he stepped on his own toes. But I would say this, your prayer life reveals more about you than you might originally think. Your prayer life reveals more about you than you may actually think. You see, the way that you pray or the way that you don't pray, it might reveal an incorrect view of God, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't want to hear what's going on, or perhaps that God doesn't even know. And so maybe that's why we don't bring things to God for shame, for guilt. Why would I let him know that I'm feeling certain ways? Why would I bring my sin to him? It's an incorrect view of God. Or maybe it's like Peter. Peter didn't pray. He didn't run to the Lord. He didn't fall on his face in prayer. Why? Because he had a very high view of himself. I'll never deny you, Jesus says. You'll deny me three times before this night is over. And so he had an incorrect view of himself. He was intoxicated with self-confidence. And this didn't lead him to prayer. And many of you, you either have an incorrect view of God, many of us, I should say, I'm in here on all of these. In some small way, not in my said theology, but in my lived theology, I have an incorrect view of God. I have an unhealthy view of myself. Maybe even perhaps the way that we pray reveals a skewed understanding of the greatest needs that you actually have, which is not your own health or the health of your neighbor, but forgiveness from sin Deliverance from temptation, as Jesus taught us to pray. And so what do we do when we realize we don't pray as we should? What do we do when we realize we don't pray enough? When we experience a willing spirit but heavy eyes, what do we do? Do we walk out of this space condemned? Well, we're back down to the original place that we found Peter. With too much confidence in and of himself. Now it's not recorded in Mark, but I want you to catch this. Luke 22, another gospel of Jesus Christ, it records the same night. And it gives us a little bit of a different angle. It gives us some more information about what took place on this very night. Jesus looks Peter in the eye. Not long before this text that we read tonight. At some point in between the Passover and their prayer there in Gethsemane, Jesus looks Peter in the eye and he says, Simon... Simon, behold, Satan demanded, past tense, he demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In mind, I'm sure Jesus is saying, Peter, Simon, Simon, Peter, Jesus is, or Satan's going to destroy you. He's demanded to have you. He wants to take you. He wants to test you. He wants to cause you to abandon me. He wants you to deny me. And he might even win some of these little skirmishes. He wants to sift you like wheat. Maybe you're not a farmer. I'm not. But being sifted like wheat sounds like you lost. It sounds bad, right? Satan demanded to have Peter. Church, he demands to have you as well. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to go back on your promises to the Father. He wants you to abandon the covenant that Christ has made with the Father on our behalf. He wants us to go back after the idols that we've been rescued from. He wants us to dive headlong into the pit that we've been raised up and delivered from and set on this firm foundation, which is Christ. 
And so what should we do? We should pray. And yet we're back to that same place. What do we do when we don't pray as we should? And I know that we've been blessed with prayer warriors in this church. They've been here for a long, long time. And I know many of us pray, but I know this. None of us pray as we should. And so what are we to do? How are we to feel? Is there any hope? Well, verse 31 leaves us in a dangerous position. The dangerous, scary mindset. Satan demanding to have us like Peter. Demanding to take us and to sift us like wheat. But what does verse 32 say? Jesus looks at Peter continually and he says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter failed to pray when he should. But Jesus did not fail to pray for Peter when he should. Think of that. We may fail to pray when we should. We may fail to pray correctly. We may not have the right words. We may not even have the right focus. We may have an incorrect view of ourselves, an incorrect view of God. And yet in our failures, we remember that we are not the hero. Jesus is the hero, as we saw last week. He's the one that saves us. Not by our own prayers are we saved, but we are saved by his righteousness. Consider this. The one who felt the weight of your sin, both in his divinity and his humanity. The one who knew the weakness of your flesh and his own, but overcame it. The one who submitted to the will of the Father by giving himself up to die on the cross. The one who was resurrected from the grave. The one who ascended into heaven. The one who now sits at the right hand of the Father praying for us. He is praying for you, Hagerstown Church. If you're in Christ, Romans 8, 34 is for you. This is what it says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, and listen, who is indeed interceding for us. Brother, sister, listen, Jesus is praying for you. When you're faithless, he is faithful. When we are prayerless, he is prayerful. Let's pray in his name. Jesus, we are able to approach the throne. We're able to come to the Father because of your faithfulness. When we are weak, when we are faithless, you are faithful. When we turn our backs on you, when we are confused, when we are scared, when our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak, you are strong. Jesus, we praise you this morning. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to feel the weight of our sin. Father, may we hate sin as much as you hate sin. May we see sin as you see sin. Father, may we see our sin on Jesus. So Father, when we're tempted to stray, would we see the pain that it has caused our Savior? Would we see the, 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 the work on the cross that it has required to cover? 
would we turn from it? Father, would we see our own weakness as you revealed to Peter, and we saw it last week, that you changed Peter, you allowed him to see his own weakness, and Father, that he was okay with that. He began to see his own weakness, but the strength of Christ. Father, may we allow Jesus to be the hero in our lives. And Father, we ask, just as the disciples did, as we look unto Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Father, would we be honest? Would we approach the Father? Would we make our petition known, but would we submit to him? Father, in all these things, thank you for this truth, that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus, we pray now in your name, the same name in which you pray to the Father. Amen. Hagerstown Church, I want to invite you to stand. As you do, consider this. When we are weak, when we are faithless, he is faithful. When we've not been faithful to him, he's faithful to us. Let's sing about this idea that great is our sinfulness, but even greater is his faithfulness to us.